Asalaamu Alaikum guys, we've got a really interesting podcast for you today but before we get into that, just a quick shout out to our sponsor, Not Just Travel. Booking a holiday is about so much more than just flights and hotel. Not Just Travel believe in providing a seamless journey to your next holiday experience. From picking the perfect destination to adding those little extras that make your holiday that bit more special. Call Akhtar Jafar or visit www.akhtarjafar.notjusttravel.com to book your next holiday experience the Not Just Travel way. Hope you guys enjoy the breakdown by Al-Hadi Youth. Brothers and sisters, welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. My name is Ahmed. With me again today is Abbas. Um, firstly, I want to apologise to you guys for the hiatus for uh, what seems like a, a very, very long break since our last episode. Uh, please, please uh, forgive us, accept our apologies. Um, I'm sure you, you guys have also been really busy over the summer since Shah Ramadan has finished. Um, but hopefully we are going to be in full speed uh, coming towards the month of uh, Muharram and um, starting with this episode we are really really blessed lucky and fortunate to have with us brother Sadiq Mekji. Assalamu alaikum Sadiq. Wa alaikum salam thank you for inviting me today. Thank you for being here it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, Abbas can you tell us why we're doing this episode and, and kind of get us to grips of what we're here for? Yeah so I mean quite a few people have been asking the question around and I think it is a topic that we on this platform we can discuss is what exactly is the hosa how exactly does it work over there and for people who i know quite a few people are interested in going to hosa and they're not quite sure how exactly it works yeah. i mean they know about uk-based hosas they know about the middle east like what's, what's the difference and so we just thought you know have this podcast speak to someone who does attend the hosa in Qom, i believe yeah that's correct and you know debunk any myths uh, any advice that you may have for the other people uh, who really do yeah. want to join. So to get started, so would, you, would you mind telling us a bit about what the Hawza is or, or how you define it to someone? So to begin very quickly, a quick summary on what you could define the Hawza as is the Hawza is essentially a religious intellectual institute mm-hmm. which has two main responsibilities. Uh, the first responsibility is to produce and to nurture and to create fuqaha and maraja. Especially this is very important during the time of the occultation where we yeah. don't have access to the imam. Obviously in the place of the imam we have the role of the scholar. Yeah. Uh, so that's the main responsibility of the Hawza. The second responsibility of the Hawza, which has come within the last 100-200 years has been to look after and to care for the religious Shia community. So you see a sense of taking care of the Shia community making sure that they're there to answer questions and to help any issues that come up. And the Hawza itself really does go back to the times of the Imams. Mm-hmm. So even to the time of the Prophet, for example, you'll have little institutes or in the time of the Prophet at his mosque. And later on during the times of the Imams, in particular Imam Baqir, Imam Sadiq, they would themselves have institutes where they would actually teach religious guidance. And they would train various of their companions to actually go to different communities and provide religious guidance to those communities. Even as far as places like Nishapur, in Mashhad, in all parts of the Islamic world, you'll find different companions of the Imams. As far as Ahwaz, for example, we have some companions of the later Imams. And these companions would be trained with the tools necessary and they would go and give guidance to the Shia community there. So you see it as an institute with its own historical precedence at the times of the Imams. And you see that it continued from the time of the Imams up until today. And what's really interesting is if you see after the time of the occultation, 
you see certain parts of the Islamic world were quite well known for having these hauzats. Mm-hmm. For example, Kufa is, Kufa is uh, mentioned in the history. You have Baghdad. You also have Najaf and Qom. Yeah. So Najaf and Qom were obviously very big uh, places where scholars would themselves attend. We have some of the biggest names. For example, when you, when you think of Najaf, you think of Sheikh Tusi, mm-hmm. a very big scholar that we had going back at least a thousand years. And so after time progresses, you see the locations of these hosas also change. You see, for example, momentarily in Hilla in Iraq, you also have some scholars coming from there. And then later on, you find, for example, the hosas going to Isfahan during the time of the Safavids. You had scholars like Sheikh Baha'i, Alama Majlisi, two very big scholars later on during that period. And then you see it sort of reverting back to Najaf and Qom as we have today. Yeah. Mm. So that's sort of like a very brief overview. It goes back to the time of the imams. And during the time of the occultation, the Hawza has moved from different places, obviously depending on different factors at the time, how supportive are the local governments, yeah. um, whereabouts are the scholars of knowledge gathered. That also affects where the, the Hawzas um, are situated. And obviously now it's located in Najaf and Qom mainly, but also you have Karbala, you have Mashhad, you also have some schools in Isfahan, you have yeah, in Syria, for example, you used to have, but till today it continues in its limited capacity. Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, we're fortunate to have a whole range of yeah. seminaries. And obviously being in the 21st century, you have houses in London, you have houses in America, you have seminaries all, o- all over the world, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So obviously that's a new step now yeah. that we have in our history. If you don't mind me asking, what's interesting is you, of course, you're a member of this community here mm-hmm. in Northwest London. You've been born and brought up in this community, contributed to society here in, in Western civilization. If you don't mind me asking, why did you feel the need to take part in, in uh, a completely different way of life? Uh, one would say maybe an Eastern way of life, um, an acad- Islamic and academic way of life, but not in your homeland. That is a very good question and obviously everyone's response will perhaps be different. The reason mm. I felt necessary for me to go, for example, all the way to Qom, even though I perhaps could have gone just down the road in London and yeah. st- studied a little <laughs> bit there, was firstly I have a principle that if I want to do something, make sure I give it 100%. Right, yeah. And for me, studying in London, there were a number of barriers that would have come up. Firstly, for the financial stability, it's not easy for someone to stay in a place like London and just dedicate themselves to studies, for example, if you have a family, you have the work pressure. So that itself wasn't possible. And secondly, being in Qom, or even being out in the East, where you have a traditional Hawza, where you have heritage, where you have legacy of the ulama, one big thing that you definitely get is you get variety of scholars who you get to sit with. You also get the benefit of learning a language. Mm -hmm. So one one of the biggest things, one of the best things I've benefited from the past few years that I've had is, for example, mastery over the language. I can speak Farsi fluently because they teach you. Um, Arabic comprehension is very good. So now you have those tools. You become dependent as well to start engaging in your own research. You become independent in being able to access the texts in and of yourself. To a deeper level. On that. And to take things to a deeper level. And yeah. you, begin, you get the ability and the tools to navigate, you could say, this whole Islamic studies a lot more easier. Uh, which I felt like over here, perhaps you could get that, but it might not be so quick or it might have taken a little bit longer. It might not have been to that depth or to yeah. that maturity. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, obviously, when you go there, you're immersing yourself straight into a, a Farsi speaking school or an Arabic speaking school. Whereas over here, it's kind of you're learning in English and side by side learning a different language. So well, exactly. it would take more time. You're, you're yeah. taught in the medium of English over here, for yeah. example, unless you have a class who already learned Farsi or already know Arabic and the teacher is able to speak Arabic and Farsi. But over there, you're immersing yourself in a totally new language, and that itself has so many other benefits for you. Do you feel that hindered your study, especially for the first year? It wouldn't ne- didn't necessarily hinder it, but it definitely worked on my patience. Because mm-hmm. you imagine you're excited, you have all these hopes, and you have all these ideals about what life's going to be in, in form. And then you get there, first of all, once you land, it takes about a good a week, two weeks, maybe even three weeks to get the whole admin side process. Okay. Admin side process, you have to have... Uh, you have to have health checks, you have to have interviews. And once that finally finishes, you can actually start to enroll in a Farsi school. And then obviously you're sitting in a Farsi school uh, called Al-Mahdi and you're essentially taught the alphabet for a week, for two <laughs> weeks. And that gets quite painful. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, like really? What am I doing here? But I mean, that's nice, isn't it? For people who perhaps have less access to it or have not been brought up in, in communities where they learn that sort of stuff from... A to Z, literally. <laughs> well, completely, because you're sitting there in a class with about 10 or 15 other people and you're just looking around and you're just gauging and you're trying to take in the different, like, the different people who are there, the different yeah. ethnicities, the different backgrounds. Because people go to Qum for a, like, a whole variety of reasons. Some mm-hmm. go because they're really passionate. They've literally just become religious. They have had no madrasa background. They've had no yeah. community. Uh, I remember a guy in my class who was literally from the farm of like a small village in Azerbaijan. He just decided, oh. okay, I'm packing up and wow. I'm coming to Qom. Oh. And you have other guys, for example, they've come from an academic background. I remember one teacher from France he used to teach in the University of Marseille. He was a teacher of sociology and he decided to leave that all behind because he was infatuated with the stories of Shahid Mutahari and Sayyid Khomeini. Oh. So he came and he, he oh. was after the more academic side of things. And then you have others, for example, who are more interested in like the political activism. They want to come and see, okay, you know, Iran, or Qom in particular, has a very political brand of Islam, mm-hmm. a very political way of seeing things. I want to come and benefit from that. You've got others who come, for example, I'm, I'm after the whole spiritual side of things. I'm, after, I'm into Irfan, I'm into Akhlaq, mm-hmm. I want to find a teacher. Obviously, Qom yeah. is the heart of like, philosophy and mysticism. So you have all these different reasons of people coming in. And it's great because when you're in there learning Farsi, you're all there together, you're learning together, you're trying to put together like half-baked sentences in Farsi to each other and you're correcting your mistakes. And it's great because you get to, you get to have that more personal interaction, you get to engage and understand what people's motives are. And again, it's an eye-opener because you get to realize that, you know, people have come from different walks of life and people have sacrificed even more than you might have sacrificed because mm-hmm. it's not easy to pack up. But then you're here with a bit of humility as well. So, I mean, obviously going, so it's been how many, four years? It's been four years. Four years, right, since you, since you um, initially decided to go. What we, it's nice hearing that people have so many different kind of reasons for going to study. Um, and I, I imagine it's not just in Qom, it kind of, it's this, you can find the same sort of people in different seminaries around the world. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what was, what was your driving incentive? Who did you want to be? How did you picture Sadiq Mekji leaving Hawza at the very end of your term of study? That's a very good question. Again, for me, I was driven to Qom by an insatiable quest for knowledge, you could mm. say, or a unlimited yearning of curiosity, feeling of curiosity. I was, for a long time, I was very curious as to how things worked in Qom. For me, it was very mystified. I was never actually, I could never actually understood how the whole process of Islamic studies worked, what was exactly studied. And the thing is, I had a lot of friends in 
not necessarily in Qom, but some in Najaf, some in Syria, and I'd be in touch with them and I'd hear about their studies, and it was really fascinating for me. And also personally, I had I was quite well read. I could my Arabic was to a decent level as well, so I had some understanding of what the going into had. going study, into Qom. So right. before I went to Qom, I had some grounding as well. Yeah. Okay. So that really helped as well because when I went in, it gave me a little advantage over the, over some of my peers. But the main factor that drove me to go was purely the search for knowledge. And obviously, first of all, knowledge to help me get closer to God because we're all on our personal journey. For many people, it is a self-journey. of It's a journey of self-finding, self-fulfillment, yeah. understanding what is your obligation to God. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you have so many questions growing up in the West. You're trying to be a Muslim. You're trying to understand your religion. You're trying to understand your faith. You're trying to understand the Hadith, for example. You're trying to understand the Quran. And it got to a stage where I was pretty much fed up with the English material out there. Like I, I got to a stage and I was like, I don't want to read an English translation by someone whose first language is in English. Mm-hmm. I'd rather go straight to the source myself and see and benefit from teachers, see what there is out there. And that really drove me on to go and mm-hmm. to keep going. And like, um, like, what made you, I suppose, like take the plunge and just commit to going? Or was it a case of like, I might go and then and then you change your mind and then you were kind of like it was, hesitant. It's or a really hard decision to make because it's, it's essentially it's pretty much a blind faith kind of jump. Exactly. Um, obviously, there is the whole tawakkul aspect, but mm. then you were always told from a young age, you know, trust in God, but tie your camel. Mm. <laughs> so for me, I was fortunate to have some sort of uh, qualification. So I did uh, like a, a safety plan. If anything did go wrong, okay. I had something to fall back on. Okay. Um, so because I had that as a backup, I felt like if anything did go wrong, yeah, I could just call it. Okay. I could just call it quits and say, you know, yeah. that was a good six months. That was a good year. I enjoyed it. It didn't work out. Back to central London again. Yeah. So I was quite fortunate in that respect, and that really did help me okay. make that decision. I mean, if I didn't have that, then it would be a completely different. Would you have perhaps not considered going at all? I think for me, before I went, I wanted to make sure that I had something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, this goes back to the whole discussion of what do people actually do when they come out of Hoza? Mm-hmm. Um, because we live in a time where because people go with so many different intentions, so many different factors, not everyone wants to come back, for example, and become an, a speaker. Yeah. You have a whole movement now. People want to start joining think tanks, perhaps. You have people who want to join academia. You have people who just go for personal reasons. Some people literally, they just pick up their family and they go because they don't want to what they have their yeah. kids growing up in the West. Mm. So for them, they're not really thinking, okay, how am I going to come back and serve a community? How am I going to come back and do this? And uh, so, yeah, so from there, we could say that the definitely having the qualification really did Helped help that decision. Yeah. Help my decision. Um, an, <clears throat> an interesting question, which I think many, many listeners would be um, kind of keen to know. So, I mean, the first time I had an in-depth kind of study of any seminary was, again, about four years ago, um, where I, I went on a course to, uh, to Najaf, and I spent time in the Hausa there with um, a few friends, people I knew and people I didn't know. And it was kind of an academic retreat. Um, so we'd spend eight to 10 hours a day with some of the highest level scholars, Bath Khadij level kind of students, and even a couple of the teachers. Um, which was awesome. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Najaf is amazing. Imam Ali is here. And um, I really enjoyed it. And then a year after, I spent time in Qum. And I thought, wow, Qum is amazing. 
You know, it's, it's incredible. So the question I'm, I'm trying to get to is a lot of people who may consider going to Hausa even now or in the future, the, the one question they may have is how do you choose where to go? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, a, a main difference or a primary distinctive element between the two le- leading seminaries of Qum and Najaf? So going back to my own decision, definitely when I made the decision, I don't think it was like a academic decision where I squared up the differences between the two in the curriculum that they taught and the subjects yeah. that they taught. It was purely on the basis of pragmatic reasons when it yeah. comes to the actual ability to go and study, especially when you're going with a family. I think it's it's a bit difficult to compare even Qom and Najaf. Qom actually has infrastructure, it has this, the dedicated resources to actually look after students, it has thousands and thousands of students, it has a dedicated program. Uh, specifically to help you learn Farsi and to push you into the actual Holza program. Mm. Whereas obviously Najaf is newly coming up, it's had a lot of its own, Iraq itself has had many problems that mm-hmm. have kept Najaf unfortunately behind in that respect. Yeah. So for me in terms of the reason why I went to Qom was purely because that the pragmatic reasons were favoring Qom. Yeah. Uh, the Western community and Najaf isn't really that big. Uh, it's not especially when it comes to having kids or like mm. having kid, uh, family spending time together. So the pragmatic reasons definitely trumped the, perhaps the intellectual or the hosiery side of things. Um, yeah. But again, going forward, things might change because I know of, at the moment there are a lot of courses now opening up in Najaf. Yeah. The yeah. primacy of learning in Arabic is obviously a, a lot bigger attraction yeah. than compared Farsi. Farsi yeah. than compared to Farsi. Although learning Farsi as well does have its benefits because that's the language in which a lot of contemporary discussions are had. And in fact, the majority of the scholars do speak Farsi. Um, but again, the play between Qum and Najaf for many students, um, I think at for every for every student, it might be their own decision to make. Yeah. Um, definitely, for students, they should try to to reach out to other students who are there on the ground to give them a better image, a better understanding. Uh, in terms of the subjects taught, primarily they are the same. They do the have curriculum. Is the curriculum pretty much same. across the same across the two halls is the same. You have okay. some small differences, for example, on whether philosophy is taught to early students, whether philosophy is taught later on, <coughs> whether Irfan or Akhlaqi discussions are taught the same. But that's more for late for later years. Once you once a student actually starts to mature and his his studies get strong, that's so when you see the differences come up. The but, preconception of perhaps Najaf being more traditionalist is that a false, like kind of perception to have? Not necessarily false. I think there is a bigger element and a bigger emphasis placed on traditional subjects. And to give an example of, for example, how we can say things are a little bit different. So when we describe the Hosa, we said the Hosa has two main responsibilities. One is the mm-hmm. production of, of scholars and the other is to safeguard the Shia community. Now, when you look at Sayyid Khoi, for example, Sayyid Khoi, when he discusses this, the science is necessary for someone to become a scholar, he says essentially there are three things. There's your, you need to learn Arabic, of course. Um, you need to have Ilm al-Rijal to be able to understand the Hadith. And he says you need to understand usul. And those are the three sciences he essentially says that you need to be, to be able to become a faqih or marj or mujtahid. And obviously he doesn't mention mantiq and he go, logic yeah. and he goes into a lengthy discussion about how a decent common sense understanding of logic will be sufficient for mm-hmm. a scholar, for example, to be able to go and extrapolate Islamic law. And this is Sayyid Khoi, obviously his views represent the mainstream in Najaf. And then on the other side you have Sayyid Khomeini. Mm-hmm. obviously from a very common background. Uh, when he gives his discussion of what he considers actually a requirement for someone to become a faqih or a mujtahid, 
you see something slightly different in what he says. He says, for example, the scholar should have be underst- should understand urf, for example, mm-hmm. the local custom. That's very yeah. important. You can't extrapolate law, for example, that is contingent upon an understanding of the urf that has yeah. an impact. Mm-hmm. Other things he mentions, for example, he says that the person needs to have a full, fully co- a ma'rifat of the kitab or sunnah. So, for mm-hmm. example, he needs to be fully aware of what the messages of the Quran and the hadith. And also you see emphasis on understanding zaman and makan, so an understanding of your time and place. So you see here, for example, you do see a little bit of a difference going on there. And obviously in Qom now, you see a slow shift, not necessarily away from a traditional understanding, where you begin to see a gradual inculcation of different subjects that weren't traditionally seen to be part of the seminary's curriculum. Mm. So for example, Sayyid Khomeini, one of the things that he wrote about during his time was the introduction of philosophy, for example. Philosophy yeah. was now openly taught to a lot of the later students. You had akhlaq discussions taught very openly, mm. discussions on Irfan. So you do see a little bit of a change, a little bit of a change uh, between Najif and Qom. But again, I feel now we're living at a time that change will, or sort of you can see an expansion of what is being taught within the Hawza will gradually start to uh, increase a bit. You will see that. Hmm. And how, how do you see that, that shift like towards a more academic Not necessarily towards more. a more an academic discussion. I mean, to give you an example of how things are in Qom, you see a lot more institutes now mm-hmm. uh, operating outside of the Hawza, but within Qom, under very top scholars, who are engaged, for example, in philosophical discussion, looking yeah. at combating Western ideologies, yeah. uh, looking at, for example, being able to use the fiqhi and the usuli framework to answer new, to new issues. And you see, for example, a lot of scholars now engaged in these open discussions. So in Qom, very recently, a new school was opened up specifically okay. for Western students. And nice. the, name, the, the course module is essentially Occidentology. Which is wow. basically looking at Western ideologies yeah. and understanding yeah. where they've come from and who the, who the founders were, what the changes mm-hmm. were. So you do obviously see now an opening up of the idea that we now need to engage in subjects that were traditionally not taught in mm-hmm. the Hausa. And you see obviously that change coming through. And uh, again, it's being supported and backed by some of the biggest scholars in Qom. On that note, I think it's interesting because obviously we live in such a sensationalist society nowadays. Um, the world is shifting towards secularization. Um, Western ideologies are seen as civilized ideologies in some parts of the world. Um, and, and one could make an argument that for anyone who's an Islamic scholar, regardless of where they are based, they need to be, like you mentioned, have an understanding of the Urf and, and the context surrounding them. On that note, as someone who's been born and brought up in a Western kind of civilization, uh, and at the same time ha- have had a grounding in the Middle East, naturally you've got an understanding and, and you know kind of the complexities of, you know, you've got the Labour Party and the Tories here, but mm-hmm. maybe someone who lives over there won't understand maybe how politics works on the other side of the world. Saying that, does the curriculum allow for, for diverse thinking or open-minded thinking to the point where someone could look at contemporary political theories or even contemporary philosophical theories spanning across the world and understand the general gist of how philosophy and politics are thought of in a wider world um, and, and viewed by the, the seminaries and viewed by Islamic scholars, if that makes sense. 
That does make sense. But just to go about a step back to give a little bit more of the dynamic and form. Yeah. How it works is the student who goes to Qum essentially has a hosa that they attend. Yeah. Now that hosa itself will be, so for example, it'll take up five, six days a week. <laughs> it'll be from seven to twelve, seven to two. You'll have your main classes. You then have your own site. You'll have your own um, homework for those classes, etc. Now those Hosa classes that you have part of your curriculum, that doesn't limit your home experience. Okay. So in fact, the majority or the biggest benefit that you have in home, from my own personal experience, is actually being able to benefit from the different institutes that you have, the different scholars that you have available, the different classes that you have going on in the evenings. And all of them are very open. You can go and attend, you can register, you can build connections. And again, you have a whole plethora of, avail- of options available. If you're interested in hadith, you can go to hadith scholars. If you're interested in Quran, you can go to Quranic scholars. If you're interested in more contemporary, philosophical, sociological, whatever, historical discussions, you can always find your avenue or your scholar available. So it's not the case that the Hosea itself limits you through your curriculum. Because, I see. Because you can have a curriculum, for example, that takes up most of your day or yeah. part of your day. But the thing is, if the student is still interested... Um, they still have the option to actually go and go the extra yard and go find out what else is available. It's kind of mm. like university, for example. You have mm. your main lectures, for example, but then in your lectures, your teacher will say, okay, try to read this. Or yeah, you'll have visiting lecturers come in that's optional for you to attend. And some people attend, some people won't attend. And it's exactly the same dynamic over there. You'll have your main classes, you'll have your main subjects. Again, yeah. subjects can be your traditional subjects, for example, your fiqh, your sur, your Arabic. But then... The student who really wants to be studious and take it to the next level and actually benefit from being in Qom, and this is where the majority of the benefit actually comes from, not specifically your actual Hosa class, but just being able to explore Qom and see what else is available and engage in these discussions. Yeah. And in fact, you do have many, many institutes that are engaging in these discussions and that are very intellectually fulfilling and who are very diverse, very diverse in thought and who have... Who, can, who are currently producing very strong critique, for example, of current ideologies. Right. And you can see, again, like I was saying, you can see a progression. Although it is in its infancy, perhaps <laughs> you can say it is baby steps, but you, know, you can see that there is definitely a progression going in a very positive direction. And um, just on a more personal note, I know you touched on it previously, um, but it's a question many people have, like family life and going to Hausa. How, how exactly does that work? Because... Do you take your family with you? Do you leave them here? Do you... Um, I think if you leave your family behind, that's a bit... <laughs> you, won't have a family, you won't have a family to come back to. Um, definitely, for sure. Like, obviously, in my experience, I went there with one kid. Alhamdulillah, I have two kids. So my experience is probably a little bit different. If you're going like, single, you're going as a bachelor, you're going married, for example. Yeah, all the dynamics are different. Uh, in terms of obviously my situation, I try my best to make sure the missus gets her time to study. Yeah. Obviously the kids, if they're old enough, they'll go to like a nursery, a Montessori equivalent, okay. where possible other time to know she'll be at home. And it does require a little bit of flexibility um, to make sure that, for example, if I have to do a school run, I have to be home with the kids, missus wants to go out, we go for autumn trips. Like You always have to make sure that the timetable is on point. You've got to make sure that you know what you're doing, you're not missing classes at the same time, but you're not neglecting your family. And it can become quite a challenging task, but mm-hmm. it's an enjoyable one because yeah. you're all going through the experience together. For a student who, who moves to, to a seminary and mm-hmm. has, a, has a wife and a family, how does, how does one kind of manage and balance their financial situation? Does the house provide any stipends or how, do you have to have something on the side? So that's a very interesting question. So the, the house, at least in Qom, 
I'm not sure about Najaf or any other husband. In Qom, what happens is you have the ability to take an accommodation. They do provide accommodation. Uh, unfortunately, that free, the free accommodation that they give is quite far out of Qom. Um, mm-hmm. It's about a 25-minute, half-an-hour drive just to get into Hausa in the morning. And then obviously oh that drive God. back in the, up in, the, in the evening can be quite it's like taxing. Commuting. It's pretty much like commuting. And <laughs> yeah. you have to wait for the school bus to pick you up at like 6.30. And, or you have to take a taxi out. And then obviously you take a taxi every day of the month, it kind of negates the whole idea of you living in free yeah. accommodation. So again, the option is there and you know, students who, do, who are a bit more needy, they would take or who don't have the financial ability, they would take those accommodation, very nice accommodation, not, it's good standards, good standard of living that they provide. Um, apart from that, if you have a little bit more money, you can get a house nearer to your seminaries, of course, and just how it is over here, different parts of Qom are more expensive, depending on how old, how new, mm-hmm. how the facilities are, the closer yeah. to the Haram, you're more expensive. So obviously you have that dynamic playing as well. Um, in terms of stipend, Hosa uh, does give a bit of money, but again, if you have a family and two kids, it's probably what, 10, 20% of your expenses really? for the whole month, yeah. maybe a quarter of your expenses the whole month, and the rest of the money you have to make up out of your own pocket. Really? And mm-hmm. that's why you have a lot of students, for example, in the summer, they'll come back, they'll work, they'll try to make up enough money to go, or you know, if you're fortunate, you might have some family members who see your time there as an investment mm-hmm. for the community, so they'll fund you. So obviously the financial issue is something to keep in mind and that's definitely an advice for anyone who's going is that make sure you do have a backup plan, make sure you have something to fall back on because God forbid you get there and you're kind of running a bit low, you know, help can be given but it's not going to be here, <coughs> so it's not going to be the same mm-hmm. if you had your own things to fall back on. And is it a case that perhaps when you're there, you, you know, you likened it to university, like perhaps you, your, your class are like from seven to two or something. Mm-hmm. Is there a, is there ability or chance to get a part time job in Com? What is that? No, not officially really because you're currently you're there purely to study. Okay. And I don't think they have as in the, it's not like you can just get a part time job mm-hmm. doing no something. You can't you can't just pop into the local Starbucks. mall. And just, uh, <laughs> I mean, what you can do is start doing translation work. You can start yeah. perhaps informally teaching people English. But again, that that wouldn't be advised. Uh, sorry, the translation potentially, if you could work for, for example, certain offices, certain mm-hmm. institutes, you could help out with translation work. Uh, but definitely not informally teaching or like helping Iran and speak English because that could then end up taking a lot of your time and taking away from Yeah, I think one thing, probably a major thing we, we haven't covered yet is talking about um, the access for any of the sisters in the community in the seminary. So ladies who want to study be it um, in Najaf or Qum, I'm sure the dynamic is pretty different. But let's take Qum as an example. Are there facilities, firstly, um, and are those facilities or, or is the access to studies as advanced or on the same level as, as you know, the facilities that men have? Uh, I mean, in terms of the facilities, they definitely have exactly the same facilities in respect okay. of schools available. You have mm. two, two big schools or three big schools, if I remember, in Qum currently each with their own specific curriculum, each with their own, for example, just how the, the men would go in and learn Farsi straight away, you'll have, the sisters will go and do the similar time in Farsi and then they'll have their own studies. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the curriculum itself, I am aware <laughs> that there are some differences. Okay. Um, there are some differences and again, I'm assuming that has its own factors in why there are differences, but I wouldn't say the differences are to that extent to say there's a significant sort of separation between what men study, what men study and what mm-hmm. women study. 
I think when men go into their studies, at least in the school that I'm in, there's a there's an idea that the guy himself will be there for 10, 15 years, so it's a lot more laid and a lot more deep. Okay. Uh, so I'm not sure if that understanding or that framework is there on the sister's, sister's side, but I know, I know that there are some sisters who are doing some really good work and their schools are very strong. Mm-hmm. And you find that, I know you said that you, you have your wife and she studies uh, alongside you, you find that you can have similar level conversations with her or... Um, in certain, in certain yeah. subjects, definitely, there is the case. Um, in certain subjects, that definitely is the case. But again, for <laughs> in in the situation where someone has kids, it's a little bit harder for them okay. to study as much as, yeah. for example, I might be able to study or their husbands might be able to study because for yeah. them, it's they're out every day putting in six, seven hours of actual study time and then they have the time in the evening to go and work on other studies or work in other areas. But for the sisters, unfortunately, if they, especially if you have kids, then you know you'll get out for a few hours a day and then mm. beyond that you're back with yeah. what you have to do so it can be taxing but i'm like there's ways around it what i do with my missus is we try to have discussions on various various things mm-hmm. i try to encourage her to go out in her spare time or come home a couple of days a week put the kids to sleep so then i'll tell her okay from like seven in the evening till 11 you're free you know i don't want you home go home <laughs> go do your own <laughs> If the kids wake up, I'll look after them. So there's definitely ways you can go around to make sure that you try to fix the imbalance. But yeah, I mean, you try your bit, I suppose. <laughs> I know when I mean I I studied um, a course in university and and a particular module and a big chunk of actually my dissertation review was was um, talking about um, Iranian politics um, in the twentieth century. Um, and I remember the I had a particular lecturer, <coughs> excuse me, who would always refer to the Hausa, the Hausa as an interesting institution in, in Iran and the Hausa influenced the revolution in a certain way. And, and it was interesting to understand that from a Western academic perspective, the Hausa is seen to be uh, an institution which fueled rhetoric, mainly in, in mm-hmm. political discussions. Now, being on the inside, um, have you found that there's any political sway? I don't mean governmental sway, I mean political in terms of dialogue. Um, or even rhetoric um, uh, in what's taught or the environment of people or the language which is used. What do you mean in terms of how the whole environment may, for example, be politically so charged? I know, for example, certain... when you, yeah, I mean, you said, for, for example, at the beginning that some people go with the, with the activist cap on um, with the goal to, to come out and feel, you know, um, with, you know, the drive to go and change the world and be, you know, people who fight for justice and so on. <laughs> is that something which is... Uh, given in the house, or do you see that sort of energy there um, from a political stance in the sense that, you know, I don't mean, again, I must stress for, for policy and regulations of the podcast, we don't mean kind of in a governmental sense, but more so in a kind of in a dialogue. Is there an interest in politics? Um, yeah, I think there's a big interest in politics, especially so first of all, you have the global politics, especially when it comes to the Middle East, when mm-hmm. it comes to Iran, America relations, yeah. if anything does happen there you'll often see some very big scholars come up with some very big statements <laughs> yeah, and obviously try to encourage other people to do similarly. So you definitely have reactions on the global scale. Even when it comes to the domestic issues, Iranian economy is in an abysmal, abysmal state at yeah. the moment. Yeah. So you'll often find a lot of scholars coming out and pushing different messages to try to encourage economic stimulation, to try to encourage people to partake again. Uh, so, for example, last year you had this whole vibe or a whole push where foreign products mm. um, were essentially banned from being imported. Mm-hmm. And obviously they put that as a governmental regulation, but 
<laughs> people still found ways around it. Domestic and trade. Domestic yeah. trade and, you know, smuggling and all sorts. So then a lot of scholars from Qom, they came out and they said, look, you know, we have to support the economy, we have to support our country, we can't yeah. allow this to happen. So obviously you do find a big push coming from the Hosa, especially some of the, big, the very big scholars. Uh, when they see, for example, a situation that's very politically dire or necessary for them to get involved, yeah, that would be very common. Yes. And do you feel your place as a Brit or a British student studying over there, does that have any sway on the way you're viewed by other students or by teachers? No, I think, alhamdulillah, now there's so many students from the West in Qom that maybe if you were to ask this question to someone who was there 10 years ago, so, you know, it's, it's always great sometimes, it's, you, like, there's some scholars that we have who've been in Qom for, like, 20, 30 years from the West. You'll sit down with them and they'll tell you, oh, you know, we came here in 1992. And when they saw us, they said different. this. And they, they, obviously, John you, you can imagine. Terrible yeah. <laughs> you can imagine the reactions when you're, Sorry. when you're the first Westerners there trying to study yeah. Islam. They're like, huh, you're even Muslim? What's going on? Yeah. Um, so now that's kind of the background noise like you don't really have people coming to you and saying oh but you're from the west or so your affiliations must be x y and z i think the, under the maturity levels are beyond that to actually start to devise based on your ethnic lines your country lines your political affiliations especially now there's so many again there's so many western students probably into mm-hmm. the thousand from different countries belgium turkey germany france u.s like all sorts so the schools are very well aware of <laughs> how different factors and countries can play it. Mm-hmm. And just on just on that point, you said so many different nationalities. Is it particularly difficult then to get to get a place in the Hausa? Does like um, No, I think the Hausa is open for admission. I mean you just have the, so the process to apply there is you simply apply. Um, mm-hmm. for Hoja students, I know they can go through World Federation. Okay. Um, we're fortunate to have that avenue. Um, for non Hodas or for others, you can go through um, London Hoza, I believe. They have a representative of Jamas and Mustafa here. You apply, you have, you have an interview, and then they can get the ball in motion. <laughs> so admission, again, is not... It's, it's, not, it's fairly straightforward. And I know at the moment, or at least I knew of, that there was a policy to start inc- recruiting more students. Okay. So they're looking to, you know, sort of get in more students, train more students, and increase does, the presence. Does admission include any form of test on your Islamic knowledge or general academic knowledge? No, there is no, at least when I took mine. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if the guy saw me and was like, wow, there's no need to test. Or he was like, the guy's lost the sentiment. Um, could have been either. But generally speaking, it doesn't seem to be that way. You'll have yeah. a health check. You'll have a general chit-chat about your motivations for coming to Iran or to go into Qom. Obviously, to make sure there are no dodgy links or there's nothing mm-hmm. funny going on. So they're going to do their, the others, the Hosa will do their side to make sure that everything is clean. And then once you get in, you're just treated like everyone else. You're just the number one system and you have to go and make your way through. Um, Salih, thanks a lot. I mean, before we wrap up, I know we've got a number of questions which people have sent in. Um, so thank you to everyone who is listening and, and who sent in some of the questions that um, we can pose. Um, there's probably about six or seven but if we were to kind of summarize them uh six or seven are the best ones mm. but if we were to put forward a couple one one which is a very good question and i think this could be discussed for, it could need a podcast on its own when it comes to factions within the house itself do you feel there's much diversity in critical thinking and difference of opinion that is a very good question and in order to answer that I'd probably need another point. <laughs> yeah, you would. You love yeah. that. You love that get out of yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that really did throw me off 
or potentially one of the things that I wasn't quite aware of or mm-hmm. quite ready for was just acknowledging the differences of opinion that you had within the seminaries and how that could really lead to um I wouldn't want to say like a cliquey mentality yeah. but it can very much lead to um some very strong differences of opinion and or some very strong distances you could say between or it could, it could become it could become a barrier mm-hmm. in the way people react right. to it and that again is unfortunate but again it's it's a product of knowledge mm-hmm. at the end of the day no matter no matter what you're studying you'll always have differences of opinion and always have, especially when you're sitting with scholars for example who themselves have studied 40 50 years so you will have that sort of that diverse understanding and different ideas being shared mm-hmm. um, and do you find that there's tolerance for the wide range of opinions or yeah again i i feel like there definitely are institutes within qom that express a wide range of opinions there um, whether or not that, that diversity is reflected within the hoser itself, which the students mm-hmm. follow, mm-hmm. that's a separate discussion. Okay. But in Qom itself, definitely, there's a plethora of opinions. Yeah. You have a wide range of scholars available. Um, the question, again, is whether or not that's reflected within the syllabus or the curriculum yeah. in which Western students are part of. Because maybe perhaps I should have mentioned this 20, 20 minutes ago or so, but definitely <laughs> Qom can be split into two. You have the, for at least a hoser student, you have that holds a student who mainly sticks to his curriculum and doesn't mm-hmm. go beyond that. And then you have the Qom, which is inclusive of that, which includes a whole range of different institutes, different scholars. Yeah. And definitely, if you're looking at Qom from that perspective, without a doubt, there's a whole variety of opinion. They're all tolerated. They all get along nicely. Surely that, that diversity in opinion and, and those different, maybe not factions was the word to use, but perhaps even different circles of, 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 of scholars or different you know people with different opinions, surely that's a healthy kind of a tool for progression of dialogue within the Shia community. Without doubt, without doubt. I think that's a very good summary of how we could explain it. But And again, it's a product of knowledge itself. It's very healthy and it's a good environment for, for us to be able to test out these different mm-hmm. ideas. I mean, in Qom, if you would expect if there was any place in the world where Shias can have differences of opinion and be able to engage in discussion, yeah. you'd, want it, you'd, want it, you'd want it to be in fact yeah. in Qom because you know mm. it's controlled. You know, the ones having the discussions are in fact qualified to have those discussions. They're competent to have those discussions. Right. And you're definitely hopeful that, that those discussions can actually lead to better, further understanding for us. Right. At least when they trickle down to the West, etc. Okay, and um, just we're running out of time. So just a couple more questions that we've been sent in <laughs> from our viewers on Instagram. Um, what is the obligations of one who has completed their Hosea studies? Or perhaps not completed, but who has studied in the And just to caveat that as well. Is this is it is does the term exactly does that exist? When Can do you complete, complete the whole yeah, exactly. I guess. Oh. Two-part question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to become a mujtahid, then there really is no yeah, completion. No it's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing. Knowledge is definitely insatiable. We have a tradition that says there are two people that will never be satiated. One the the one who seeks the world and the other who seeks knowledge. Mm. So and that's definitely something you experience when you go in. You're like, okay, I want to study this, and then you get a little bit deeper. You get exposed to more ideas. You see the benefits, and for example, you can understand the Quran, <coughs> and you just see different layers of knowledge being opened before you, and you realize, wow, I could really be here for another ten, fifteen, hundred. What give me another million years? I would literally continue studying. So again, I think again, it's a personal decision depending on why people went there in the first place. Do people feel like they are, they are able to, have they been able to accomplish their objectives while being there? Um, so again, I can't, you can't give a one-size-fits-all answer, universal answer for everyone. 
in terms of an obligation, yeah. um, it reminds me of that tradition we have that everything has zakat and the zakat of knowledge is sharing it. Mm-hmm. So I feel there definitely is an obligation upon doing something now you're tasked and you have that knowledge. Uh, the methodology you go about in enacting that obligation perhaps may differ. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think one thing we're so used to is we're so used to people going on the mimbar and giving lectures and we see, okay, this guy's been to the hosa, he's now ready to give a 10-night Muharram series. Yeah. And unfortunately, when we pigeonhole like seminary students or students of the Hausa that way, it does them a disservice because like we mentioned, there's so many different reasons why they went to the Hausa. Some may have gone for their families, some may have gone for themselves. So a person may act upon this obligation in many different ways. He could, for example, join an academic institute and start to defend Shiism within an academic environment, which is something we need at the moment. You have others, for example, who could start working more with their family. And then you have others who perhaps they've been out for five, ten years and now they're in a bit of financial difficulty. They just have to come back and work, which has happened to some great scholars. We have for ten years, he had to go back to farming because his situation was a bit difficult. So we know that there's a wide variety of different ways that you can live out your obligation. And essentially, it's up to the individual to realize what is my situation at the moment? How can I help? Who am I helping? And Mm -hmm. can I stand in front of God on the day of judgment with the acknowledgement that I've fulfilled my obligation yeah. or what you want to do just just to kind of go back one minute um the the concept of completion of Hausa studies is the seven year 14 year kind of theory is that does that exist no it definitely does exist i have certain teachers who are like after eight years or become a mujtahid and you know he's just trying to encourage you to keep yeah. going but i feel like after again this is personal and perhaps people may not be happy with me even saying this but i feel like after you spend a good 10 15 years you can get a good understanding of the framework Right. You may not be able to have the exact depth or the breadth that someone who studied the 30, 40 yeah, years has. Course, yeah. But I think once you gain those tools, you can then apply them in other areas if they needed to be applied. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the benefit of being there for about five to ten years. You get an mm. understanding of the environment, you get an understanding of the scholars, you get an understanding of the methodologies that the scholars themselves are using in whatever their, whatever field they're in. And once you can grasp that, I feel that's a that's a healthy position to be in. Mm-hmm. You think that's a, definitely a position of competence and qualification. Sure. sure. And, and just on like a final note then, a final question. Um, well, not really a question, but what advice then would you give to someone around the age of 20-ish uh, thinking, perhaps thinking, should I go to university or perhaps has finished university and thinking now, I'm interested in Islam, I'm interested in studying. But I'm not sure and what they should do. And yeah. there's so many friends who say pre-marriage or post-marriage. Ooh. Honestly, yeah. it's crazy. And would, would you perhaps recommend them to study here, maybe first study in London or in Birmingham, and then go to Qom or Najaf well, or go straight there? Or Definitely, I would suggest that before someone goes to Qom, they should have a taster course okay. of what they're getting themselves into. Um, someone hasn't been to Sunday Madrasa, for example, Saturday workshop. Like, yeah. I can't imagine them being thrown straight into the Hausa <laughs> and then I don't know what to, how their reaction is going to be unless they're really motivated enough for it. So definitely I think a good way around that is for someone to actually have a little bit of a taste of course, have mm-hmm. a little bit of an understanding of what Islamic studies actually involves to at least start to get in touch with those students who are there so that they themselves can start to give a better picture of what's going on on the ground and start to gauge whether or not the student is potentially ready to actually come to Qom. And again, definitely going straight to jumping to Qom is not something I would advise, especially okay. if there's no financial planning, financial resources available to be able to sustain that. And I would even say potentially if that person was to go and get a job, spend a few years working in central London in a corporate environment or doing something that he enjoyed, 
spending time in society and then taking that knowledge or those life skills okay. to Qom if he really wants to study at that stage then I feel he'll be a lot more mature and a lot more yeah. ready mm-hmm. and a lot more equipped to actually go and benefit yeah. and he won't be someone who's passive as well because he's seen life he's had yeah. his own experiences he'll be able to stand his own ground he'll be able mm-hmm. to critically challenge and I feel like his experience even if he spends two, three years it would probably be better than someone spending 10, 15 years but just oh, wow. there as a passive participant just taking in different things but not going in with a strong framework or idea thank you so much thank you Salih for your thank time no worries thank you for your <laughs> sorry time sorry to overwhelm you for <laughs> 45 minutes of us talking nonsense but hopefully yeah, inshallah the, you know you found the questions okay and hopefully the viewers uh, sorry the listeners rather found the, your answers um, as insightful as we did so thank oh, you thank for your you. time um, guys, as always, um, well, Sadiq, just I hope you don't mind me asking, is there any way for anyone to reach out to you? If I know you're here for a couple of months, yeah, if, if anyone I mean, has any questions. If anyone wants to get in touch, I suppose they can do so through. What's a reasonable media? non-stalkish medium to get? <laughs> yeah, I, have a, I mean, I would say I have Instagram, I have Facebook, but I barely use it. But yeah, if you want to get in touch, Maybe maybe reach out to us and then we yeah perhaps the best way to reach yeah. out is if they want to reach out to yourselves and then you and can any questions we can pass on or vice versa however uh, and as always um, guys and girls brothers and sisters thank you for tuning in um, as always if you have any topic suggestions any guests who you'd like to see on the podcast um, any ideas um, if you'd like to get involved in any other element of al hadith's work um, across the board please please. Do let us know. We're on social media at Al Hadi Youth on Instagram and on Snapchat and on Facebook as well. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.